This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. We're starting a, a new series. And um, it's uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' series of sermons and teachings on the Mount. And it's, it's all about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. What is it? What is the kingdom? Jesus spoke about the kingdom often. In fact, He talked about the kingdom far more than we ever talk about the kingdom. Uh, In fact, he never says, Jesus never says, uh, at least in scripture, he never says, receive me as your Lord and Savior. You never hear Jesus saying that. But Jesus always says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Enter the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. He constantly compares being born again to seeing the kingdom, to entering the kingdom. What is it? What is the kingdom? You know, in our concept, our concept today of ancient kingdoms is foreign, especially in today's society. Um, So it's best to be understood this way. Whenever a new king or a governor, or even a CEO, uh, takes over. He comes into power. Um, His new power is expressed through a new administration. You know, new administration wipes out the old administration. You see this when presidencies change. You see this when um, governors change. A CEO takes over uh, a company. He comes with new policies, uh, new priorities, new strategies, And if he's successful, then what's going to happen is he's going to meet your needs and he's going to improve the quality of life. Very, very simple. Jesus is the supernatural king. And when he comes into power, his administration, he says, is represented as the kingdom. And so he brings with him a new set of priorities, a new set of strategies, new values, new policies, and uh, the effects of these things are far greater than we could ever imagine. Far greater. The effects are far more radical, far more comprehensive, far more holistic, far greater than, than the previous administration. When Jesus comes into power, and he comes into power of a heart, or a life, or a family, a home, or, or an institution, there's total transformation in every dimension of that entity. And so the Sermon on the Mount It shows us how far-reaching that transformation is. And the Beatitudes here, specifically the Beatitudes, you can only understand them in that context. Have you ever tried, have you ever read the Beatitudes and tried to understand them? Outside of that context, you can't understand it. 
It's hard to understand. Without that understanding to explain the kingdom, the Beatitudes, it seems like just a series of wise teachings, wise sayings, you know, proverbs almost. You know, it seems like sayings that are meant for different classes of people. There are uh, those who are poor in spirit. There are those who are mourning. There are those who are meek, right? Um, There are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So it seems like these different classes of people. But if you think about it, none of that makes much sense when you think of it that way. You know, it seems like empty sayings, just proverbs, just old empty sayings. You know, couple examples. At first glance, if you look at uh, the text here that, that Charlotte had just read this morning, you know, there are eight to nine different kinds of people, it seems like, um, when you read the text. But look at the beginning and the end of what we just read. In the beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end, he says, blessed, you know, if you're persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, those verses, the beginning and the end, serves as like a bookend. Two bookends. And it gives us a clue um, because it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know that in other words, what, what the author is saying here, that these verses encompass all the qualities of people who enter into the kingdom. They're the two bookends. And everything that within then encapsulates the quality and the characteristic of people who enter into the kingdom. One group of people. Jesus here is describing what a citizen of heaven is like. And for the next few months, several months, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters. We're going to spend months on this to look into the character and the quality of the people. What it means to be a citizen of heaven. Now, there are people here that are trying to figure out if they're a Christian or not. And, you know, we're often confused because as we come to know Jesus, we're often confused because we observe different varieties of people, expressions of faith, people coming to a Christian understanding. You know, one type of person is is very experiential and they're very emotional and and they see a turnaround and you say to yourself, wow, like, you know, I'm sitting here and I don't really have that kind of experience. And then there's another person, type of person who sits there and they're very stoic and they're very, they're very still. And there's not much emotional change. And you say, hmm, you know, I'm not really like that either. We get hung up on the two different types, many varieties actually. And the truth is, these are just forms of experiencing God. There are many forms. There are many more forms than that, you know. But we need to focus on the content, what it is that brings you what it is that draws you in, what it is that's transforming you, and what it is that allows you to enter. Jesus cuts through all of that, the emotionalism, the stoicism, and he makes it very, very clear here. It's not about how you come. If you're a Christian, these are the qualities. These are the values. These are the characteristics. If you look at these verses, they're not virtues. They're values. They're not general. Seems general. For a long time, for me, it seemed general. They're not vague. You know, they're very clear, actually. You're going to see how clear they are. You know? In fact, even the order that Jesus represents these Beatitudes are important. So we're going to walk through them. The first four verses show us how to get into the kingdom. You've got to be poor. You've got to be mourning. You've got to be meek. You've got to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, we're going to f- focus on those first three today, you know, uh, being poor in spirit, mourning, 
meekness. The second four verses, the latter half of this text, it shows us what a transformed life, what new life really looks like. How the gospel shapes us in our relationships. How it shapes us in our integrity, our purity. How it shapes us in our mission as peacemakers in the kingdom. So the first four verses, you know, what it takes to enter in. The last four verses, what it takes when 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 you're living in the world once you've entered in. The quality, the characteristics of citizens of the kingdom. So today we're going to focus on the first uh, three qualities of entering into the kingdom. You know, being poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness. Three very, very points, uh, very quick points, uh, very clear points. A citizen of the kingdom is characterized by being poor in spirit, by mourning, and by meekness. Okay? First, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the first requirement to access the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom. And, uh, you know, it's departing from our current culture because today we live in a self-help society. If you get on cable and you flip through channels, there are plenty of do-it-yourself shows. We are obsessed today with the steps to getting through a certain end, you know, the means to getting to a certain end uh, a certain goal, a certain objective. And, and self-help basically says this. You can just believe in yourself. If you just believe in yourself, you can do it. You know, don't be negative about yourself. Don't listen to drown out the negative voices that says you can't do it. Don't doubt yourself. Just get up, by, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't listen to the negative voices and accomplish. Get it done. But Jesus, he takes a very, very alternative approach. He says, you need to listen to that inner voice of negativity. He says, you need to doubt yourself. He says, you don't have what it takes. He says, don't believe in yourself. Why does he say that? You know, the core of Scripture, the core of the Bible, one of the core teachings of the Bible is this. Your problems are so far beyond you. There's nothing in you. There's no resource that you have. There's no wisdom. There's no courage. There's no endurance. There's no perseverance. There's no provision, ultimately, that you've got inside you that can get you through the problems of the world that you have. You're poor. You're absolutely bankrupt. You know, we live in Philadelphia. It's one of the greatest cities in the United States, one of the largest cities. And that means that we have some people here who are the brightest minds. We have some of the most attractive people in this city, The brightest, most attractive, most talented, most athletic people live in the city of Philadelphia. You know what that means? That Philadelphia, citizens of this city, have the capacity to experience tremendous wealth, tremendous power, tremendous authority in society, tremendous potential. But this text is telling us that our problems are so far beyond us that there is no single person who has the capacity of intelligence to get us through those problems. Everyone here is broken. There is not a single intelligent being. There is not a single talented, gifted individual that has the inner capacity to get through the problems that we experience on a daily basis because of our brokenness. We're broken, completely broken. We're bankrupt. We are poor. There's nothing in us And that creates a tremendous depth of insecurity in our lives. And we're constantly trying to fill that insecurity. We're working to, we're laboring, we're pursuing. We figure if I could just get that level of wealth or that level of security, 
then the insecurity will go away. It just creates new insecurity because of the brokenness. There's no, there's no amount of wealth. There's no title that you can aspire to that you can achieve that can get you there. And, and, and that means that, you know, when you're pure, poor in spirit, a person who's entering into uh, the kingdom realizes that the brokenness is so widespread and so deep. It's more than sociological. It's more than psychological. It's more than sexual. It's, more, it's beyond anything that we can to muster up and transform and change on our own. It's a spiritual problem. It's a cosmic problem. That's what we mean when we say it's a cosmic problem. And, and you know, you know the problems are spiritual problems. They're beyond anything uh, that a philosopher or a therapist can lead you in. They're cosmic. There's nothing in you. And because there's no philosopher, because there's no therapist who can lead you out of those problems, that means not only is the problem so deep that there's nothing in you and your capacity to, to be able to, uh, to get yourself out of that, there's nothing outside of you that can help you either. There's no person, there's no person or talent or helper outside of you in the world that can help you. It's a cosmic problem. It's a spiritual problem. We are broken, and that's very, very important. Why? Many of us, very important, many of us approach the Bible and approach Christianity and approach Jesus and approach God as just another method of self-help, self-help. We see it as another, we see the Bible as just another do-it-yourself process. Another set of teaching, another, another set of uh, wise sayings and teachings. Another set of, a series of examples that we can follow. So when we encounter bad things in our lives, we say, you know what, maybe I should just try out church. I'll give church a try, clean myself up a little bit, but you can't do that, you see. You can't do that. You can't say, I'm coming because I just need a boost. I can't come to church because I need improvement. You can't come to church like that. You come to church because you're bankrupt. You come to God because you're poor. You know what it means to be poor? Do you know what it means to be bankrupt? Think about the actual word. It means that you have no resources inside yourself. You have no resources in any of your reserves to pay a tremendous debt that is mounting. It's continually mounting. It's mounting so much, you just, there's nothing you can do. That's what it means to be bankrupt. To be poor in spirit is to be exactly that. It's very, very clear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, he says, blessed are those who mourn. The first beatitude, the first blessing, beatitude means blessing. The first blessing um, is to acknowledge your inability. The second beatitude, the second blessing, is about maturity. The first is about inability. The second is about maturity. What does that mean? What's the difference between a mature person and a, and a person who has a very immature view of the world? A person who has a very mature view of the world looks like this. They see the world. They see institutions. They see people groups. They see their families. They see themselves. And they realize that we just saw small parts of a whole broken thing. We're all broken. Every one of us are broken. And, and that's realistic and that's expected. So that helps to frame, in many ways, your worldview. It frames your discipline. It frames, um, you know, when you hold back your anger or how to hold back your anger. You know, it frames, you know, you realize, you know, this is not natural, this, but it, at the same time it's expected. And so, you know, it frames your compassion. You're not surprised when, a, when you experience betrayal. 
You're not caught off guard so much, so brought down when you experience sorrow or grief because you realize this is the world. This is sin. This is, this is my life. You know, and it frames your anger. You know, it frames your compassion. It actually frames your respect for other people. But you know what an immature view of the world looks like? You know what the I, I can do it on my own view looks like? You know, you, you basically think, you know, I'm meant to be fulfilled in the world. I need to get there. And you are going to help me get there. And, and so when suffering comes, you become bitter. You, you're, you're caught off guard. You're completely caught off guard. And you're, you're angry. And you're bitter. And, and you're just constantly pushing. And you're pushing other people to fulfill your needs. You know, fulfill your agenda. And, you know, and um, you don't treat people with respect because they're just a means to fulfilling your agenda. And, and so that's why, you know, relationships are broken. That's why your integrity, you know, your purity is oftentimes broken. That's why our mission, our mission to advance the gospel, God's kingdom, we abandon those missions. We abandon those things. God, what God intends us to do or be. You know, we say, you know, this is, this is not how my life is supposed to be. I'm very, very angry. We take it out on other people. You know, Who's the most guilty of that? It's the church. It's religious people. We're the most guilty of that. We just kill our leaders. We love just killing our leaders. We love, uh, you know, killing people in authority and, and one another, and that's what gossip is. Gossip is really just killing people, you know. Uh, we just love to do that in the church. You know, a mature p- a person looks at life and says, you know, the human condition is so desperate. It's so broken. Death is not normal. You know, um, it's bad. It's an evil. Tyranny is not normal. It's an evil thing, you know, and, and one, but one day all these things will be subsumed. One of these things, one day all these things will come to an end. An immature person looks at death and says, you know, I'm just trying to accept it. I'm just trying to accept death. If you look at Hollywood movies today, it's all about death being your friend. Death, just learning to cope and accept death. We've grown so numb to, to the symptoms. We've grown so numb to the roots. You know? But if you're thoughtful, you're going to ask, you know, why are we so bad? Why are we so broken? Now, if you blame yourself and you say, you know, well, it's, it's, I have a low self-esteem, you, know, you start to pity yourself. Well, where did you get that low self-esteem? That, where did that low self-esteem come from? Well, you know, my, my parents, they didn't really bring me up very well. They didn't really love me. They didn't hug me enough, you know, um, they, they don't love each other, and that's how I kind of grew up seeing that. Where did that come from? Well, you know, their parents didn't love them enough. Um, you know, they, they grew up in a very, very harsh society, their class struggles, um, you know, in their generation. Uh, where did that come from? And if you keep tracing that back and back, you know, all the way back, what's the root? Eventually, you're finally going to have to come to a place where you have to acknowledge sin. Most of us avoid it. <laughs> we avoid it from the get-go. You know, we avoid it in every step, in every backward trace, we avoid it. But we have to, when you trace it back far enough, even into your own life, you know, why you do certain things, you trace it all the way back into the deepest roots of our hearts. We always want to avoid it at first. But a wise person, a very mature view of the world will take you to the place where you, we acknowledge sin. We see sin. Now, we see the symptoms. The symptoms point to how serious things are. <clears throat> but it's not enough just to know the symptoms. You know, you need to know the diagnosis. That's why we go to doctors. 
right? Knowledge of your symptoms. Everybody knows the symptoms. But, um, it, you know, if you go to your doctor and you say, you know, doctor, I have a, you know, body aches, my fever, you know, rage, it's raging, it's like 103, you know, I have body aches, I'm sweating like crazy, I'm shivering, I'm cold, and if the doctor just says, I can see you have a fever, and I can see um, you are sweating, um, that definitely, you, got, you definitely have body aches, I can tell that um, you're cold as well, um, so that means that not only do you have fever, uh, and, and you have body aches, but you also have the chills, you know, um, it's not going to help you. You're like, no, I, I came to you for the diagnosis. I want the help. You know, the diagn- it's not enough to come and acknowledge the symptoms until you identify the disease. And the Bible teaches us, here's the problem with the world. What's the problem with the world? Here's the problem with the world. It's not your self-esteem. It's not your upbringing. It's not a class struggle. It's not the politics in our generation. It's not authority figures in your life. We try to rationalize this in every way. But what's the problem? The Bible says it's sin. Simply put, it's sin. You know what sin is? Simply put, very clear, just doing your own thing. You take a two-year-old, take a two-year-old child, and you take him to the beach. Children love the beach. They love the expansiveness of the beach and the water. They love playing in water. You take them to the beach, and you show them the waves. And you're guiding him into the water, and he lets to step into the water. You know, the waves are crashing. You know, just a, maybe about ten feet out, the waves are just crashing into each other. And that child says, "What is this?" And he breaks free, he runs into the waves, right? And if you let him go, what happens? The waves will crash down on the child. He realizes in that instant that he has broken free, grown distant. The waves have crashed down and there's nothing in his resource that can help himself. He needs rescue. He needs help. Now he will struggle and swallow water and he will struggle and fight. He will beat his arms in, in the air and in the water, but without rescue, he will not, he will not be redeemed. He will not be saved. And, um, you know, the waves and the drowning, those are symptoms. Murder. Rape, these are horrible things. They're all terrible things, but they're symptoms of our sin. And the Bible says the essence of sin is that we have chosen to just go our own way. We substituted ourselves for God. In other words, what we wanted to do is we want to live our own lives, and uh, you know, we want to become our own kings, and we've broken free. And until you're willing to admit you know, that you're not mourning, you know, you've not mourned, the deepest roots, until you're willing to admit, you know, that, wow, I've chosen to be my own king and it has brought the waves of crash down on me and all this I've built up cannot help me. And that devastates you. You know, being poor in spirit means, you know, I'm drowning, I need rescue. But mourning, it means I've got myself here. This is me. I did this. I left my father's hands. Until you're willing to see that your problems are beyond you and the problems are sin, you're still in bondage. You're still a slave. You're still in bondage. It creates problems that really begin at the core and work its way outward. And it's like a grenade. It starts at the core and when it, boom, when it explodes, what happens? Everybody around you is damaged. You're damaged. The world around you is damaged. The environment is damaged. Everything's damaged. That's what sin does. It creates tremendous problems. Now, I know people 
you know, who can't stand authority figures in their life. You know, we live in a generation where we are very prone to rejecting or distrusting our authority figures. We don't give our authority figures an inch. So when they make a mistake, we're harsher, we come down on them, we just beat up, and we, we kill our authority figures. So when an authority figure makes a decision that you don't like, what happens? All of a sudden, they're evil. They're, they're bad, and we lash out. We're just waiting for that one mistake so that we can pummel them to the ground. That's what we do. That's what we do with our leaders today. I know people who just can't be wrong. You know, the reason why I know is because I'm like one of them. You know, just can't be wrong. And so, you know, um, you, know you, can't, you can't disagree with them. You know, you can't go against them. You can't question them. You know, because if you disagree, you know what happens? Their face changes. You ever see that? You know somebody who's addicted to being right because the face changes and then the tone changes with the response. And they regard any act of countering you as a sign of disloyalty and, and, you know, you're questioning the core of their identity. That's what you're doing. And so they talk down to you. They speak tersely. You know, it ruins their day. They feel usurped. Uh, You know, they feel unappreciated. They feel attacked. You know, when really you just wanted to know the answer. You know, you just wanted to know the answer. Do you get that? You know, if if, if you only admit that it's sin, you know, because you can't overcome it on your own. You know, if you admit... It's sin. It's in the core. That's the beginning of freedom. That's the beginning of peace. That's really the beginning. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn and they will be comforted. That's how you get strength. That's how you get freedom. If you're not mourning, then you're going to be confused. You're going to be bitter. You're going to be angry. Um, You're going to be blaming other people, blaming yourself, blaming God, blaming the world. We've been there. We've all been there. Now, if you stay there, you're going to feel defeated. You know, you know right now, you know, if, if you feel stuck, if you feel guilty, you know, if you've ever you know, hated yourself, um, you, know, you, you really just feel like right now I'm in a season, a bad season in my life, just a bad place, and I always feel stuck, you know, I'm going to explain to you why. It's because you're stuck. You really are stuck. Literally, you're stuck. Now, let me explain this to you, okay? New birth Jesus is saying, entering into the kingdom is synonymous with new birth. You know, new birth is characterized by bankruptcy, being poor in spirit, um, mourning because of your sin, you know, meekness. So if if you recognize that your problems are just well beyond your capacity, And if you realize that it's because the core of you is sin and you just stay there, you're stuck. It's like a baby that's, it's a kind of graphic image, but it's like a baby that's on his way out of the womb and he just decides to hang out for a while. You know, he's crying, the mother's crying, the one giving birth is crying. That's what's happening because you're stuck. You haven't pushed all the way. You know, the father is mourning. Because you're, you're mourning and you're staying there. You're stuck. You're literally stuck. But if you say, you know, I'll give an example. If you say, you know, I've got to correct myself. You know, I really need to change. You know, and you just kind of stay there. You know, you're stuck. There's going to be more pain. That's not meekness. That's not meekness. You're caught in birth. You know, you have to plunge your failures into the grace of God. You have to plunge your, your sin in the grace of God. You have to take your sorrows and plunge them 
into the grace of God, into the love of God. That all these waves crashing down on you at this moment, where you are, God is, God is bringing new birth. He's leading you towards new birth. That's why you're feeling overwhelmed. You know, there's nothing greater Jesus is saying than knowing that your problems are well so far beyond you and well beyond you and you, there's nothing in you. That is an amazing admission. To say that these things are the core of who you are, it's because of who you are. That's an amazing admission. The third requirement to entering the kingdom is meekness. This is how you, you enter. You know, when you see the problems are beyond you, you're saying, gosh, I, you, know, uh, you know, this is destroying me. My problems are destroying me. The waves are crashing over me. You know, when your problems are the result of your sin, what you're saying is that I should have been better and I wasn't. I could have been better. I was called to be better and I didn't. You know, I, I basically I let go of the Father's hands and I ran into the waves. And you beat yourself up and you beat yourself up. If you stay there, you're going to get crushed. But if you become meek, then you're going to be encouraged. Then you're going to find strength. You know why? See, when you're mourning, you're in pain. But if you say, you know, if you say, you know, more, I can't correct myself. There's nothing I can do to just help myself. I need somebody to help me. I need help. Who can I run to? Initially, there's more pain. It's pain inside because you're coming to tremendous admissions that you, that you're not, you weren't willing to let go of before. But you know what meekness is? It's one thing to be angry because you're a sinner. But it's another thing to say, of course I'm a sinner. That makes sense now. Sin is the answer. You know, I have all these gifts. I have all these talents. And look how I've used them. And look where it's taken me. It's taken me nowhere. You know, I've distanced myself from the Father. I've broken free. I thought my gifts could take me to where I need to be. And I thought I, I, thought I got there when I got there. And now I'm here. And my problems are still there with me. I still have problems in my life. Big problems. I thought my gifts were enough, but they're not. You know, there's a type of confession that leads to death. You know, and then there's a type of confession that leads to life. You know, there's a type of confession that says, you know, I need to be better. That's going to lead you to death. And then there's a type of confession that says, I need to be forgiven. That's going to lead you to life. You know, people out there, say that, a lot of people out there say, you know, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You know what you're saying? You know, I'm bankrupt, and God has taken on the debt, but I still need to pay back the debt. That's what you're saying. I still, I still need to pay it back. That's going to lead you to self-pity. Judas Iscariot was a disciple of Jesus. You know, that means he lived with Jesus, he followed Jesus, he heard from Jesus, he talked to Jesus, he ate with Jesus, he slept near Jesus. But he betrayed Jesus. And after betraying Jesus, he realized what he had done. And the Bible says that he actually went back and tried to pay the money back to get Jesus back. And he gave the money back. But it wasn't enough for him. And so... Uh, he hung himself. And that's a picture of basically what we're doing every single time we beat ourselves with guilt and self-pity. 
We say, I need to be forgiven. God is a God of forgiveness. I need to be forgiven. But no, this is what you're basically saying is that what Jesus has done and God's love as great as it is, it doesn't cover over all of my sins. I still need to pay it back. I still need to pay the debt back. You know, (laughs) a true citizen of the kingdom says, I've done wrong, but I'm going to run to the Father. I've done wrong, but I've run, and I've run from the Father, but Jesus has rescued me. I need rescue, and Jesus has rescued me. I need salvation, and Jesus has saved me. I'm drowning in my own mess. The waves of, are, are sweeping over me, and Jesus has come in, plunged into the waves, and has released me, has saved me. And that's more than enough. That's more than enough. It's not like God has just poured out just a little bit. He has given me his grace is so sufficient that whether than, rather at one point the waves have crashed over me, the waves of sin have crashed over me and I'm, I've come at an end. It's been replaced by the waves of God's love and it is overabundant. It is more than sufficient for me, more than sufficient than my sin. Why did he do it? Only he could. Why did he do it? Only he would. That's the power of God. That's the power of God's love. And he did it for me. Think about it. If you're trusting, if you're trusting in that, what I just said, then you can confess. Then you can pray. Then you can run to Christ. Then you can come to the Father in meekness, not weakness. That's true courage. That's true courage. You know, the word meekness, it's not weakness. In the Greek, the word meekness is praus. It's the image of a wild stallion running in the wild who's been tamed. You see, now you get to see the enormous potential of that horse. At once he was running wild. He was just throwing his energy around. But now, as a tame horse, a tame stallion, now you're going to be able to get to see the beauty. Now you get to see the power. Now you get to see... Uh, the, uh, the enormous potential of this horse, the gifts of this horse. At one point, I've broken free and I've run wild. Now, I've been tamed. I've been rescued and I'm tamed. Now, I get to experience the true beauty of what God intended. Now, I get to experience the true potential, the true, the true freedom, you know, that I've been given. You get to see the upper limits of why God had created me. You get to see that. You now accept the suffering because of your experience grace. You know, when you experience grace and that you experience it in an overabundant way, when you behold what Jesus has done for you, oh my goodness, then you can see that you can accept your suffering. And when you're assured of God's grace, you know that God has not let you go on the suffering. You can withstand the suffering. When you know that God's love will never depart you, you can experience the loss of love in your life. When you realize that Jesus took the ultimate suffering, then these sufferings must have a purpose, a meaning, a reason. You may not know the reason all the time. You may not know them ever. And some of us, some of us have experienced tremendous waves in life, crashing on our lives. God doesn't diminish the waves. He doesn't diminish the meaning of the waves. He sent his own son to experience the ultimate wave. He understands suffering. There is purpose in suffering. A meek person is teachable, is open, is confessing, is repenting, is running back to the Father, is submissive, 
is tame, is free, is at peace, is comforted, is strengthened, is joyful. There is no burden. That's what it means to be meek. How do you get it? How do you be led to be meek? And we know this through the cross. You know, the cross shows us that the ways that we're about to crash down in our lives, you know, there are ways still. There's a storm coming. But Jesus will take the wave, the ultimate waves, that we can return to the ultimate harbor. Jesus knows brokenness. The cross is the ultimate representation of the brokenness of the world, the ultimate brokenness. He had taken that on. Jesus knows what it means to mourn. He's standing before the grave of Lazarus, and he's mourning. He's weeping on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the sign of mourning and weeping. He's repeating that phrase. You see that in the Bible? It means he's weeping. There's crying, there's emotional content there. He's weeping. He understands. And he did this because he understands sin. He became sin on the cross. Jesus knows meekness. On the cross, you see ultimate power. Ultimate power. Ultimate access to God. Abandoned, betrayed, and yet he's composed. He's weeping, but he's controlled. He's reciting scripture on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm chapter 22. He's reciting scripture on the cross. You know what that means? On the cross, betrayed, abandoned, abandoned cosmically by his own father, God himself, turned away from him, and yet he's doing his quiet time on the cross. Look at the discipline of Christ. Look at the the worshipfulness of Christ. Look at the the control of Christ, the self-control. He's being obedient for you. He's obedient for you. The creator, the governor of the universe, lost his kingdom. And he's overwhelmed. You know, when he says, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? The waves, the cosmic waves of God's wrath have swept over me. And I am helpless. I've given up control. I am helpless. I'm utterly, the power is beyond me. The wonderful counselor, that's his name. The wonderful counselor in Gethsemane, he says, you know, my soul is troubled to the point of death. The suffering that I'm going to endure is beyond myself, beyond my capacity. That's what he's saying. And it's because of sin. Tremendous power on the cross, the heir to the kingdom, the prince of peace. This is God's own son. He gave up the throne for you. That's meekness. Tremendous meekness. He says, the waves have crashed over me. I'm drowning in the sins of my people. And yet, his meekness, even as God has abandoned him, he's fulfilling scripture. He's obedient to scripture, obedient to his father. He comes as a baby, ultimate weakness. He comes in homelessness, subjects himself to people who are much less wise than he, who didn't even know God, and yet ultimately abandoned by God, dethroned, for you. When you behold the cross this week, you know, it's so easy at the point of failure to first say, you know what, I got to cover it up. 
and I'm going to make up for it. It's easy to do that. That's natural. Entering into the kingdom means the moment, you, the, moment the brokenness is in your face, whether you've caused it, whether you've experienced it, you realize that this is far beyond. There's nothing that you could do in your own strength, in your own power to ever stop it. And you know deep inside it's inside. If that brings you to meekness, to trusting that Christ has paid the debt and you are free. That's the beginning of joy and peace. Jesus begins with these three values because that's what citizens, that's what a citizen of heaven is marked by. You know, being poor in spirit, you know, being in mourning, being meek. Will you plunge your failures then? into the grace of God. Look at the cross. The debt is paid. Will you plunge your weaknesses and your sorrows into the grace of God? Jesus understands sorrow. He suffered the ultimate sorrow. Will you plunge your fears, you know, your resistance into the grace of God and see what happens? You will access the kingdom. You will access the Father. And there you will know love. There you will know grace. There you will understand and experience joy and peace and comfort. Will you do that this week? Let's take the time and pray in response then uh, to the gospel.